Good evening. My name is Josh Beck. I'm a pastoral intern here um, at Pear Orchard. And it is um, truly a pleasure to bring you all uh, the word of the Lord tonight. And so the text that we're studying is um, Psalm 2. So if you want to grab your Bibles and flip there. And as I was preparing this sermon, I was, um, it was a psalm that I was familiar with, but hadn't spent a lot of time being, uh, studying it. And it was, it was really edifying and the, being exposed to the true breadth and depth of this psalm. So I hope you see that tonight. With that being said, let us hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, you have blessed us with your, te- your text tonight. And we come before you humbly and with a heart that is sometimes just looking to rage and rebel and I ask that this text soothes our heart and points us to you, to Christ. Be with us tonight as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we arrive at Psalm 2 after studying Psalm 1. And we, in Psalm 1, we saw the different ways, the different paths, the way, of, the way of righteousness and the one who is planted in the word of the Lord, and the one who is satiated in the, by the truth. As we know from Pastor Dean's sermon last week, the man of righteousness is Jesus Christ. And it is only through him that we are not on the path of wickedness. Psalm 1 and 2 provide the introduction to the Psalter. And when read and studied in conjuncture, we see the psalmist provides a rich picture of Jesus Christ. Psalm 2 is divided neatly into four different stanzas or sections. And tonight we'll label those as the nations rebel verses 1 through 3, the Lord rebukes, 4 through 6, the anointer deceives, 7 through 9, and the perfect refuge, 10 through 12. The nations rebel, the Lord rebukes, the anointer deceives, and the perfect refuge. There are moments of clarity in, in everyone's lives, um, and they all, they all differ, um, but for one... It was going from a chocolate cookie, just filled with cream, and then to an Oreo. And, 
And there, there was a, I wouldn't say it was a life-changing moment, but it was a moment of clarity, for sure. Another one is when you've only heard a song on the radio, a recording, and you finally get to hear it in person, and the notes seem to just swell up just that much more. Well, see, Psalm 2 speaks to that tension of the imperfect to the perfect. You see, Psalm 2 is a royal psalm, and it speaks to the anointing of David and how the Lord will deliver David and Israel. However, David is the imperfect. He's the blurry. He's the out-of-focus photo. Because while this is a royal psalm, this is also a messianic psalm. And while David is a man after God's own heart, he is not the perfect Messiah, the anointed one that the Lord has in focus. No, he has his true son, Jesus Christ, in full view. I want you to hold on to this as we break down this scripture because it is paramount that we keep Christ in focus. So our first point tonight, the nation's rage. We see it in verses 1 through 3. Read with me. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The wicked in the land, seemingly the surrounding enemies of Israel, plot and conspire against the people of the Lord. So to set the, the scene, if you will, I'm going to use one of my favorite board games, Risk. Many of you guys have probably played it, but if not, it's about conquest and, and you know, attacking and eventually owning the entire world. But that's not really the point. The point is the dynamics of the game. Because usually, if you're playing with family or mean friends, sometimes they're synonymous, um, <laughs> you find yourself grouped up on. You see, like your friend or whoever, just like, oh, let's, let's take him down. Like, you know, let's take a, attack him from both sides. And so that's what we have here. The nations are in open rebellion. But it's not just about conquest and domination. No, this is spiritual rebellion, too. Rebellion against the Lord, creator of all. The same way the righteous man of Psalm 1 meditates on the law day and night, the evil one, plots and schemes on how to rebel and conspire against the Lord. So see that distinction. The people of Psalm 2, the nations of Psalm 2, are saying no longer will we subject ourselves to the rule and order of the Lord. Your chains, your fetters, your bonds, they're too much. We want to be free. Maybe this sounds familiar. To all of us, perhaps, how often does that feeling seem to bubble up, simmer in our hearts? We chase so hard after the things of this world that God's word openly contradicts. And when we're, con- when we're convicted, we shrug it off with a huff and, and an eye roll like an impetuous teenager, saying, God, your commands are just too much. Why does this even matter? Let me live the way I want to live. In our rebellion, we add one more infantryman to that board, attempting to overthrow his order. 
the nation's rage. But do you see the lie that Satan has crafted, has created? Since the garden, man has wanted to supplant God's rule. We want to trade God's law for the yoke of this world, for the chains of this world. But Christ's words reveal what is true in Matthew 11.30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord's yoke is easy and his burden is light. And I don't think there's a clearer example than the Sabbath. I grew up in a, in a Christian home, so this is not an indictment on my parents in the slightest. But growing up, going to church was a bit of a chore. It was something I had to do and to be done with. It was definitely not my entire Sabbath day. I mean, as quickly as I could, I was off to sports or being with my friends or on to homework that I probably should have done Saturday or any other point in the week. The blessing of the Sabbath was completely lost on me. And how many times do we take a, a sweet blessing of the Lord like the Sabbath, a day of rest, a day to meditate on Him and His Word, and we cast it aside because, well, I've got better things to do. Why does he require so much time of me? Do you see the irony? We take a blessing and then turn it into a burdensome yoke. But in doing that, we're actually putting the world's burden, the world's yoke upon ourselves. You see, Paul writes in Romans 6, explaining that we're always slaves to something. It's either sin or God. It's not, you know, half or the other. You can't have a little bit of both. It's sin or God. He concludes in verse 22 of chapter 6, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And its end, and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord's yoke is easy, and yet the nations rage. And so how does, how does the Lord respond to this? How does he respond to these rebellious people and nations? Well, we see it in verse four, verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So how does the Lord respond? He laughs. And this is not a, a father-like chuckle of a, you know, a, a little, his son or a, you know, a son runs up against a father and the father doesn't even budge and the, you know, the father chuckles. No, this is, this is, a mocking laugh. Quite simply, in Hebrew, it says he mocks them. He speaks to them in his wrath and announces that his king will prevail. At the first reading, you might be taking a little, taking a little back. Is God laughing maniacally in heaven like a villain? I mean, no, of course not. 
And yet this expression of amusement is given to us with a promise of action. And it is his action that will shed light on his mocking of the nations. You see, our all-knowing and our all-powerful God has decreed that his king will govern permanently and supremely. He laughs because while the nations might rage and plot and rebel against him, his word and his chosen king will reign eternally. The words of the Lord are spoken both in an immediate nature and an eternal nature. You see, he will, he will establish David and his royal line to rule over the kingdom of Israel. That's that, that blurry, out-of-focus initial view. But then we look at it in the crystal-clear view of Christ. And then we see his Son has eternal dominion over the earth against the schemes of man and Satan. And we see this We see the sad truth of this in Revelation 6, 6, 16 through 17. And I think John had Psalm 2 in mind as he's also seeing Revelation. You see, Revelation 6, 16 through 17 says, Then the kings of the earth... And the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You see, there is a blessing and a curse in this royal appointment. Without the redeeming work of Christ Jesus in our life, we, will be, we would be asking for the mountains and the hills to crush us so that maybe, just maybe, we might be able to escape the wrath of the Lord. Think about that. Allow that imagery and that plead to prick your heart. Because it should. But we know this flea is futile. We will be judged by the king on Zion. However, with the grace and mercy found in Christ Jesus, our Lord, we are found innocent before God. Not through our own works, but wholly through Christ's work on a different hill, the hill of Calvary. The Lord rebukes the nation's rebellion by saying, My anointed king shall rule. But who is this king? And, you know, we know who it is. But as it is so beautifully said in a, in a phrase that every time I read it, it, it just provides warmth and an acknowledgement. Read with me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So this brings us to our third point, the anointed receives. David and his sons are the immediate focal point. You can only imagine how the Israelites would have felt reading this psalm. 
thinking about the promises of a great nation and lands that will extend all over the earth. But then they fell in love with idols. How quickly the luster of something so great and they shifted into the yoke of this world, the pursuits of this world. And the Lord allowed the Assyrians and the Babylonians to conquer the chosen people. And those remaining asked the question, but God, what happened? What about your covenants? We see this sentiment of how can this be, but church, we stand on the the blessed side of the cross. Because we, we know that these words were repeated 600 years later in the Jordan as God said, this, this is my son. Christ is the anointed king. He is the begotten son of God. Who is God and who is man? This is absolute. We see the parallels in Christ's baptism and ascension to this verse. We know this to be true, and yet, what about verses 8 and 9? They point to an even future promise. You see, it says, I will make the nations your inheritance. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to, to pieces like pottery. As the writer, Hebrew, as the writer Hebrews acknowledges, at present, we do not see everything subject to but again, going to Revelations, we see this imagery come across three different times. Showing us that even this psalm has not been completed. There is more. And so when you find, yourself, when you find yourselves asking questions like the Israelites would have been, asking, how come this world is this way? Where is God in all of this? Because there are still so many people who, just like the king's plotting in verse 2, are in open rebellion to the Lord Almighty. We know that through the spread of the gospel and the second coming of Christ, the anointed king will receive his inheritance. This is a guarantee. And so when you're asking those questions, you have to return to this fact. The anointed receives. And so this brings us to our last point the perfect refuge. Verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so the psalm concludes with a warning, an instruction, and a promise. And I personally think warnings are great. You see them on coffee cups. You see them on food before you put them in a microwave. You see them on practically anything. We know the colors and the symbols and the all caps caution. And I think that's, I think, I think there's a, not this warning, but I think there's a humor in a lot of warnings because you see that coffee cup and you're like, yeah, that liquid should be hot. I ordered hot coffee, and yet they still have to put a warning on it. But this warning is far more serious, far more impactful to our daily lives. The psalmist warns us to stop our schemes and our plots lest we perish. But he doesn't stop there. No, he gives us instruction on how to live and how to regard this coming king. 
We are to serve him and to fear and to rejoice in him. Do you see how little room there is for misinterpretation or halfway obedience? And yet we approach our lives sometimes like the food that we just put in the microwave. We pull it out and we bite into it without letting it you know, rest as if it's not going to burn our mouth. This instruction of obedience leads us into the promise that our king is extending to us. Because it is only in obedience to the anointed do we find perfect refuge. Not in the schemes of man, not in the false promises of safety of this world, not in our money, our kids, our success. No. True refuge is found in the service of the Lord. This comes to us as plainly as it can. True wisdom comes from it, originates from the fear of the Lord. You see, the, the psalmist presents the scene to be fearing so greatly that we are trembling before him. That we may be so enraptured with his amazing glory that there is nothing else to do but to sit there and wonder, trembling before the sun. And yet that's not all. We are to submit ourselves to the, to the anointed, to kiss the hand. And so when you first read that, the image that immediately comes to my mind is of the animated um, Robin Hood. You see, that you, you think about the lion that's the king and he has all the opulent rings on him and the bear um, ends up you know, sucking all the diamonds. But that's not the point because our king doesn't come with you know, opulent rings and lavish robes. No, when our king extends his hand, it has a, a hole in it. And he says, put your finger here and see my hands. He has taken the wrath that we deserve He is our Messiah. Here is our Messiah before us, telling us to come to find perfect refuge. Are you going to seek the yoke of this world? Or are you going to find perfect refuge? He is saying, rage no longer, scheme no longer. Find perfect refuge in the anointed one, Jesus Christ. So as you see, the Lord gave us a psalm for the immediate to understand its place in the Psalter with King David. But so much more is to have a clear view of Christ Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father, you... Give us blessings that we do not deserve. And when we are raging, you still, you still seek us. You still pursue us. Father, I ask that we all choose your yoke, your burden, for it is light. Father, allow us just to always keep your anointed one in view. Amen.